0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. As demonstrators rally against guns outside the state capitol, we'll look at the new laws aimed at curbing gun violence in our state. We'll also talk about another laws to better support survivors of domestic violence, sexual assaults, and other related crimes. There seems to be a disconnect between
1: the judge, court staff, And because it's very traumatizing as a survivor when you've been physically, emotionally, and mentally abused, and your offender is
0: there, it's a form of intimidation and fear. Later, we meet the two Colorado students who prevailed as Boys and Girls Club Youth of the Year. Now,
2: I look for ways to help others. and Whenever I get the opportunity, I take it. Plus, fifth
0: graders on a quest to save the bees.
2: Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. A group of protesters are gathering for a second day outside the state capitol. They're trying to move the needle on the debate over guns. Not just by calling for stronger laws, but they're pushing for an end to all gun ownership in the state. CPR's Andrew Kinney covered the start of the protest Monday and joins me now. Hi, Andy. Hi, Chandra. Andy, a ban on gun ownership in the state? That's pretty far beyond anything that any policymaker has seriously suggested, right?
3: It is. What the organizers are asking for isn't just a ban on private ownership. They also want to ban law enforcement from having guns. They want the governor to issue an executive order doing that, banning, again, everybody from having firearms. And they also want the governor to use that executive order to institute a mandatory buyback program where the government forcibly buys everyone's guns. That's not going to happen anytime soon. You know, mm. just this year, there was a proposal that would only have limited purchases of assault weapons. And even that did not get very far in the legislature. So no, I would not say that Colorado lawmakers are at all likely to do anything like banning all guns, which is what this some of these protesters are, are asking for.
0: I mean, among other things, it seems like it's a major violation of the Second Amendment.
3: It would also violate the state constitution, which also protects the right to own guns. Governor Polis's office actually issued a statement uh, saying the executive order that the demonstrators are requesting would just be a, quote, public relations statement, given that it would certainly be struck down in the courts.
0: So why organize a protest to demand something organizers have to know won't happen?
3: Well, the point the organizers say they're making is that gun violence is a radical problem, that there are terrible numbers of children in particular who are dying from gunshots, and that the only way to approach it is to make a, quote, radical request to kind of reframe how people are thinking about it and, I guess, call attention to the fact that they think dramatic action is needed. And, you know, it's not like every single protester there was in support of a total ban. Many of them were there for a a ban on assault weapons or some other change. They had a range of reasons, but they were generally all motivated by the way that this kind of specter of gun violence haunts everyone's lives. Like just the fact that they said they wake up in the morning thinking about whether a public shooting is going to affect somebody in their family. Here's Deva Yoder of Arvada.
2: Are really passionate about this. I'm passionate about it because I have two teenagers, and every time my phone rings at home, especially if it's the school, my heart almost stops. You know, and it's been that way since they were in kindergarten. They're in high school now, and I hate living that way. So, I think people need to get passionate about it about the the numbers, the way that um, guns are the number one killer of children in this country, if it was anything else, we would have done something about it by now.
0: Another notable aspect of this protest is that while many of the organizers are women of color, they very specifically called on white women to be the ones to demonstrate in person and urge people Mm -hmm. of color, LGBTQ people, and those with disabilities to join virtually.
3: Yeah, they said the idea was that white women have kind of disproportionate influence, and they argued that white women would be less vulnerable to police brutality, less likely to be beat up by police, essentially, among other concerns. And I did hear, you know, it was mostly white women at this protest. There were hundreds and hundreds of people out on the Capitol lawn. And some of the folks said they really liked that idea. They said it gave them this way to use their privilege and use their voice and, you know, this really resonated online. It blew up. There were thousands of people posting about it. Um, people traveled, actually, from across the country to get to this protest. So it wasn't like the it's not currently the biggest protest you'll ever see, but it's attracted people from all over. But on the other hand, the idea of dividing up who is going to be the face of the movement rubbed some people the wrong way. I talked to Anna Russell. She's a black woman who bought a plane ticket from Ohio. She's a teacher. She hates seeing her five-year-old students go through active shooter drills. And she said she had bought her plane ticket before she realized it was only supposed to be white women at the physical protest. And she kind of had mixed feelings about that.
0: Mm. I think it's a great idea and I understand it, but in some aspects, I'm like, I don't feel like any movement that separates the women is gonna be as successful as if, if we all working together. What's extra interesting to me is that this is happening on the heels of a legislative session where Democrats passed a really historic slate of gun laws.
3: Yeah, Democrats passed these laws that expand the state's red flag law. They raised the gun purchase age to 21. They tried to crack down on these ghost guns that don't have serial numbers. They made it easier to sue the firearm industry. And, you know, compared to the past, any one of those would have been considered a pretty big bill. But on the other hand, Democrats also shut down, again, that proposal that would have banned the sale of assault weapons in Colorado. Some Democratic leaders argued it would have taken a lot of time and attention and political capital without having that much of an effect if it's only Colorado banning the assault weapons. But that didn't go over well with a lot of uh, the people at the protests that i talked to. So now Democrats face pressure from their constituents, from their base, to go further on gun law reform.
0: Do you think Democrats are open to that pressure?
3: I think that overall they might they obviously are and will continue to work on gun law reform. But they pretty adamantly rejected the protest stated goal, which is, again, banning all guns, including for law enforcement. And, you know, Polis said that he's just not going to do a unilateral total gun ban, Um, again, said wasn't going to do a public relations statement. Few of the biggest gun law reformers in the Capitol, Senator Rhonda Fields and Senator Tom Sullivan, wrote an op-ed saying that this is an extreme position that the protest organizers are calling for and that it would, quote, diminish the earlier work on gun reforms by creating unrealistic expectations. So clearly, Democrats are trying to thread this, line, this needle where they're both saying, we're with you, we want to attack gun violence, we want to change gun law, but we're not going to do this, quote, extreme thing.
0: Hmm. Before we let you go, Andy, any sense what happens next with the gun laws Colorado did pass this year?
3: Yeah. So they've already been signed into law by Governor Polis, but many, probably all of them are likely to face challenges in courts. Uh, Gun rights groups are encouraged actually by a recent Supreme Court ruling that suggests it's going to be harder for states to defend these kinds of gun restrictions in the future. So even though those laws are passed, very much Open to interpretation. What's going to happen in the courts with them?
0: Mm, one to watch. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. That's CPR Public Affairs reporter Andrew Kenny talking about the ongoing protest at the state capitol, calling for a ban on all guns in the state. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
2: In the new episode of My Story So Far, Pride on the Western Slope.
4: One of the only spaces where I could explore my queerness openly. Um, I describe it as like a very dusty breakfast club.
0: (laughs) My Story So Far, everywhere you get your podcasts. A new task force will look into better ways to support survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, and related crimes here in Colorado. House Majority Leader Monica Duran of Wheat Ridge co-sponsored the legislation to create the task force. It was recently signed into law, and the task force will meet for the first time July 1st. This is something that's very personal to Duran. We spoke in April as lawmakers were debating the measure.
1: As a survivor, I understand a lot of the challenges and difficulty when you're going through the process, right? When you're going Mm -hmm. through um, trying to get, whether that be a protection order, whatever that might be, um, just how difficult And how at times you feel like you're re-victimized again when you go to court. And Mm. from my experience and talking to different survivors through the years and with the work that I do here at the legislature, um, whether that be running House Bill 1255, which was requiring those who had a protection order against them to relinquish their firearms or whether that Mm. is, you know, funding, right, Mm -hmm. for um, crime victims, including domestic violence, sexual assault. I hear over and over again, how survivors feel like when they're going through the process, through the court process, they feel that there is a lack of not just sensitivity, but knowledge when it comes to those who have been through domestic violence, especially if they are in court. One story I continuously hear is the fact that when we have to go to court, whether that is for that protection order or whatever it is, there seems to be a disconnect between the judge court staff when we are there, and because it's very traumatizing as a survivor when you've been physically, emotionally, and mentally abused, and your offender is there, it's a form of intimidation and fear, and there is a lack of knowledge on the other end, and that's what this task force, and my hope is with this task force, is to be able to draw attention to that and make change, transformational change. Durant also
0: points out the new law had bipartisan support.
1: My co-prime on this is Representative Gabe Evans, who was in law enforcement and really dealt with a lot of these cases, too. So through those conversations, we thought, you know what, I think the best approach to try to figure out a solution moving forward on how victims, when they go to court, aren't feeling like they're being re-victimized is let's create a task force. A task force that consists of different advocates, law enforcement, retired judges, different organizations, survivors. Most importantly, let's create a task force with all of these different voices so that over several months they can come together and put together a plan as to how can we better train judges in courts. And make that process better, right? There's always room for improvement. So for me, and I think for many of us and for our our communities and our advocates who, who fight for this every day, this would really be transformational to really kind of bring this full circle, in other words, and full circle for me and what I went through in my challenges and struggles.
0: The new task force will convene for the first time next month. It will submit a report with its findings and recommendations in November.
1: They would have to come together, really kind of figure out, okay, what's the best path forward and bring that to us, bring that to to me so that I can look at it and say, this is fantastic. We've had input from retired judges, law enforcement, you know, obviously, like I said, survivors, confidential advocate, because we want to make sure that we are. We're listening to, you know, to district attorneys, right, we will be on here. Family law attorney would be on here. I wanted mm. to make sure that we had a judge from the rural counties, right, because in rural counties, those issues and challenges are different mm, um, th- than here in Denver. So their struggles and their needs are different than what we have here. So I want to make sure that the voices from our rural communities are heard. Also, a district court judge, I think, with experience in domestic violence, it's important to have. So it's a great group of leaders within our community that deal with these uh, issues every day. And getting that feedback and input from them, I think will really kind of help carve out legislation for us to run next year.
0: What efforts will be made in terms of racial diversity, age diversity, and also things like the LGBTQ community, you know, you know, those different dynamics? Are there any efforts in those areas? Absolutely. Yep. A matter of fact, uh, some of that came up when we were
1: in committee hearing in the House. And from that feedback, I ran an amendment on the floor making sure that we have that diversity. Once those recommendations are, are brought back, then I would sit down and kind of go through all that information. Myself and Representative Evans will go through their recommendations. And then from there we can start forming our legislation for next session.
0: Okay, so would that be more like legislation about implementation? implementation, you know,
1: it's hard to say because I don't know what those recommendations are going to be. It would be trying to figure out the best path forward and, you know, just figuring out the best way to implement it. What are their suggestions? How are they suggesting we address judicial training? What does that look like? So there's going to be a lot of work that's going to take place once we get this information back. So I'm excited to see what that is. I'm actually really just excited that we're going to have this task force And we're actually having the conversation Mm
0: -hmm. because
1: for years and years, there is such a stigma when somebody has been through domestic violence and has come out the other end that it's really hard to have open conversations. And what this is going to be is open conversations of survivors who have gone through all of the processes from attorney to court to family court to everything like I went through really kind of listening to each other, right? That's the most important thing is let's listen to each other.
0: Thank you for sharing the details of this legislation, but also for sharing your personal story because I don't ever want to underestimate how difficult that may be. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to share, to say we hear
1: you and we're doing everything we can in the state of Colorado to make sure that that happens.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Democratic State Representative Monica Duran speaking with me in April about a new task force that will work to find ways to better support survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, and similar crimes in Colorado. The bill creating that task force was just signed into law by the lieutenant governor. The task force will hold its first meeting July 1st. When we come back, two student ambassadors in Colorado are raising their voices on behalf of fellow youth. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
5: Colorado's beautiful summers are even better with music of every kind. Classical, blues, indie, we've got those. Country, jazz, roots, we've got them too. From massive events with marquee headliners to more intimate gatherings... You can find summer concerts and festivals to suit your taste. See the list, who's playing, where, and when at CPR.org.
0: Summer is officially underway and many school districts are shutting down for the season. But the fun is kicking into high gear at Boys and Girls Clubs across the country, including right here in Colorado. Two students in particular are joining in a lot of that fun, serving as youth ambassadors. They were among 13 students who represented Boys and Girls Clubs from across our state in the annual Colorado Youth of the Year speaking competition held in Denver. Both students said they wanted to use their speeches to raise awareness about some of the issues many young people are grappling with in the Rocky Mountain State and beyond. Najere West is from the Denver Broncos Boys and Girls Club, located in the far northeast Denver community of Montbello. Here's some of what she had to say.
6: I was excited to begin high school, but in the middle of my freshman year, COVID struck and the world stopped. I lost my grandfather, developed anxiety, and watched my grade slips as we transitioned to online schooling. I struggled talking to people through a phone and waking up to a Zoom call. Thankfully, the club wasn't closed for long, and even though it wasn't fully back to normal, I could still attend. It was the best feeling being able to see faces I hadn't seen in a while. At the time, I was also able to participate in a program called RISE, where we talked about social injustices that never, and I mean never, get talked about at school. My voice was heard and my cousin and I devised a peaceful community march we call the March for Peace. It was hard work planning such a big event, but rewarding when we were recognized nationally and received the NFL Inspire Change Award. These experiences and others helped me win Youth of the Year at multiple levels. I can honestly say, My club has helped shape the woman standing in front of you all today.
0: Her fellow winner used her speech to provide some insight into some of the challenges that many young people in military families face.
2: Wow. Abby Addison, Military Youth of the Year. I must admit, I never imagined hearing a title like that associated with my name. I'm still getting used to hearing it. You see, I was born into a military family, and some may say it has its perks. I would agree, but military life also has its challenges. I am only 14, and I have moved eight times. In the beginning, it was fun. I explored new places, tried new foods, and met new people. In fact, I met my best friends during move number six, California. We played sports together, rode bikes to school, and were basically inseparable. Then, my dad got another reassignment, this time to Illinois, and it was time for me to be the new kid again. But after four years in California, I was settled. I didn't want to leave my best friends. So this made the hardest move I've had to deal with. While in Illinois, I had no desire to play sports or explore new areas as I had before. Leaving my best friends had changed me. I began to isolate myself. And I was worried to get close to anyone again. So when another move happened, this time to Colorado, my mom was worried about me. So she made me sign up for the Young-Based Youth Center. While walking there on my first day, the wind blew my brand new membership card right out of my hand. I was so worried about what would happen when I walked in without it that I was overcome with embarrassment. So I just stood in the parking lot and cried. In that moment, I was vulnerable, afraid of rejection, and afraid of me made fun of for losing it. Turns out, the kids at the youth center didn't make fun of me. Instead, they supported, encouraged, and helped me. Since leaving California, I found myself making friends again. Now, I look for ways to help others, and whenever I get the opportunity, I take it. I don't do it for the recognition or awards. I do it because I remember how I felt that day.
0: Abby Addison attends the Peterson Youth Center in Colorado Springs. Both students recently prevailed as state-level winners of the annual Youth of the Year speaking competition hosted by the Boys and Girls Clubs of Colorado. They both advance to the regional competition, which includes another chance to compete for more scholarships. Abby and Najere say they want adults to know that many of their peers are struggling with issues such as loneliness, depression, and anxiety. They both agree that the ongoing issue of gun violence often stems from young people
6: feeling powerless. I think a lot of it comes from not being heard. As kids, we know what we do and we know what we say. And when we're not being heard, some people act in certain ways and some people do certain things. But when we're not being heard, in order for us to be heard, some people choose violence in that way. And in order for that to stop, we need to be heard.
2: Personally, I
6: think it's
2: kind of sad that some teens or even some kids have to resort to these to be heard. and. Gun violence is just one of the many ways that teens feel like they can, what teens or even kids do to be heard. And I feel like there should be a better way for teens or even kids to go, they can go to, or they know that people will be there for them, whether that be counselors in school or even youth centers like we have. But I just feel like there needs to be something for teens and kids to go to so that their voice is heard.
0: That was Najere West from the Denver Broncos Boys and Girls Club, located in the far northeast Denver community of Montbello. And Abby Addison, whose family is based at the Peterson Space Force Base and attends the Peterson Youth Center in Colorado Springs. Abby, Najere, we wish you both the best of luck. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC.
4: Loveland was the heart of Colorado's thriving cherry industry. That began in the late 1800s, and by the 1900s there were 10,000 acres planted in Montmorency and Morello sour cherries. Those orchards raked in millions in early 20th century dollars and gave jobs to nearly every local family. Cherry stands and canning factories popped up around town. In 1930, Loveland had its first cherry blossom festival. Mrs. A. V. Benson invented cherry cider about the same time, and soon the federal government was requisitioning Colorado cherries to feed the troops. But after a hard freeze in 1954 damaged and killed many trees, Colorado's cherry industry faded. Cheaper fruit started coming in from out of state. But Loveland continues to celebrate this sweet chapter of its history every summer with a cherry pie festival. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of National Jewish Health.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. A group of fifth graders at the Colorado Academy are charged with solving a big problem. Mites were latching on to bees, killing the beehives in Lakewood Parks. Their assignment? Figure out how to stop them. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine reports on their scientific quest. So I'm sure you can all guess this is a mite under a microscope, blown up.
7: That's Carmen Wyland, bee thing. expert. She's visiting room 30 today.
5: That's what attaches into the bees. So similar to like a tick, sort of. Exactly, yeah. So we get Lyme
0: disease from ticks, and it makes us really sick. They get... Deformed wing virus, they get foul brewed, they get...
7: She explains that the bees get so sick from mites latching onto them, they lose their direction and never make it back to the hive. The fifth graders have partnered with Lakewood Parks to find a solution and create prototypes.
5: Are honeybees the only, with like the only pollinators that the mites latch onto? Or is that just the main one?
7: No. So it's,
5: it's Daphne
7: not the main... peppers Wyland with questions. She wants all the details she can get. What did you
5: say but it's gathered from? It's gathered. Beekeepers
7: and scientists are furiously working on solutions themselves. When Weiland tells the kids about one of them, a gym for bees, a light bulb goes off for the students. A bee gym is a frame with a wire mesh and spikes that let bees groom their bodies, helping them dislodge the mites. Another clue comes when Weiland tells them about how she counts mites.
0: The powdered sugar causes the mites to fall off.
7: Powdered sugar. The kids are starting to put their ideas together. I guess
0: I haven't even thought about that. That's why I love talking to kids because their brains are just open. You know, ours aren't. And they will think outside the box. Love that. The
7: students cast the net wide. First, they come up with a spray, but discover it could be toxic to bees and humans. Then a pseudo scorpion. It eats mites, but it lives in warm, humid areas. So that was next. Then they come up with the idea they'll stick with the
5: fly-through cleaner,
7: Daphne says and involved
5: the four pools of water and then the screens and the brushes and the fan with powdered sugar.
7: Powdered sugar?
5: It was actually part of our research because it said that it made it harder for the mites to grip on if there was powdered sugar on the bees. But then we learned that mites actually like powdered sugar. So we decided after talking to Carmen,
7: the bee lady,
5: mites don't like lavender, but bees do. So we could attract the bees with lavender, but also mix it with powdered sugar. So it would make it harder for the mites to latch onto and also repel them with the scent.
7: Let's break it down. First, the students found PVC pipes. Lavender is suspended from the inside of the top of the pipe to attract the bees.
5: The fan would blow the powdered sugar through the tube.
7: The bees would get coated in it, and mites would slide off. The students kept having to adjust the fans.
5: Because powdered sugar kept going everywhere. It was a hot mess express.
7: (laughs) The classroom was coated in powdered sugar, and...
5: Our entire classroom smelled like lavender.
7: There were some technical challenges. A bit of arguing.
5: Uh, I screamed in a pillow, and I got really frustrated.
7: Then they remembered... They were scientists.
5: We would also go back to our beginning stages and redefine and look at our problem statement and our needs statement to see what exactly are we trying to achieve and how can we maybe get there.
7: Let's go to a second group. They had a slightly different idea.
5: A bee car wash.
7: Alex explains the brush with bristles is suspended from the tube ceiling.
5: Just to brush the mite off the bee and then the The mite that fell off the bee would fall into this.
7: Container of water filled with lavender, thyme, and water.
5: A freaky mixture that mites hate.
7: Why water, I ask Oliver.
5: Mites can't swim.
7: Duh. And I learned mites hate the herb thyme. Figuring out the technical challenges was Noah's favorite part of the project.
6: Trying to make everything flow together. And once it finally, like, all worked out, it was really fun to see, like, the final product.
5: If bees would go extinct, we would have to change our diet, and a lot of what we eat now would not... The
7: kids presented anymore. their inventions on a big stage at school. They hope to test them out at Lakewood Parks, where mites are attacking the beehives. This type of real learning, the kids love it. Here's Tara.
5: When I thought of, like, working on a real-world problem, it made me, like, even more motivated so, like, I can help the world.
7: It's changed some of them in a deeper way. Quinn was always afraid of bees.
5: Now, I feel like I shouldn't be because they actually help us out a lot.
0: I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. This is Colorado Matters on listener-supported CPR News and KRCC.